Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And just a heads up here, last week on the show, we broached the topic of mountain town economics and affordable housing, and we received quite a response to that episode. And I just wanted you to know that we have more conversations on those topics lined up, and we'll be diving deeper into those related subjects starting next week. So stay tuned for those. But this week, we wanted to introduce you to Benjamin Alexander and his incredibly interesting story. Benjamin is a passionate skier and a passionate backcountry skier, but he is also working hard, very hard, to become Jamaica's first Olympic alpine ski racer at the 2022 Olympic Games in Beijing. So in this conversation, we talk about Benji's background and how it was, of all things, Burning Man that got him into skiing, what inspired his bid to become Jamaica's first Olympic alpine ski racer, We talk about the numerous logistics that he has had to navigate to make this happen, and we discuss some of the financial hurdles that all Olympic hopefuls have to navigate. This is a really interesting conversation that touches on a whole lot of different topics, and so while you listen to it, you should connect with Benji on Instagram at benji.ski. And you can also learn more about him on his website, which is also Benji.ski. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Benji Alexander. Here we go. Well, Benji, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. Just finished with my gym session. I am sat in Andorra. Not many people have been here, but there's actually great skiing, I hear, in the winter. There's no snow right now, but it's the little micronation that borders between uh, Spain and France. Okay. And so you're in Andorra now. Where do you tend to spend the bulk of your time these days if Andorra is not the answer to that question? Yeah. So Jackson, Wyoming is, is home for me. Uh, it's where I've done the bulk of my training. Uh, I came to Europe or back to Europe as this is my here. I don't have an American accent, but came back to Europe a couple of months ago to train in Austria on one of the glaciers with, uh, you know, a world-class ski racing school. And I'm now just kind of sat in a little bit of purgatory trying to get to the Southern hemisphere or back to snow somewhere. I guess we maybe shouldn't bury the lead. Right. And so let's just say, okay, so you're in Andorra and you're training. What are you training for? What is the objective here? Right. So uh, I am launching a historic bid to become the first alpine ski racer to represent the nation of Jamaica at the next Winter Olympics. So that's less than uh, six months away now. Uh, And as most people know, that's going to be in Beijing. And this is going to be kind of the bulk of our conversation then like how in the world did you sort of get to that very specific goal and we're going to talk a bit along the way about the logistics and the complexities of trying to get to that goal and make that happen right so maybe this is the the right point to back way up and so 
let's talk a bit about like literally your childhood. Let's go there. And like, what were you into as a kid? And then we'll eventually get into like, when was your first time on snow? Right. So grew up in Northamptonshire, England. It's about an hour north of the city of London. Uh, born to an English mother and a Jamaican father. My father was part of the Windrush generation. So him and my grandparents moved over to England in 1961, right around when he was five years old. Uh, grew up in a working class background. My mother drives disabled children around. My father drives a bus uh, around and still does to this day. They're a few years from retirement and never really traveled much with my parents. Um, didn't have the opportunity to partake in any winter sports in England. You know, for the most part, you would be traveling down to the Alps. Uh, and that was a little bit too rich for my family's blood back then, shall we say. So really had no exposure to, 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 to winter sports growing up. So then in terms of athletics, it was quite a bit later in your journey when you did get on skis. Were you a kid that was into athletics or into other stuff? So I think like any other British kid, um, I grew up playing football or soccer for the American listeners. Um, it is the only sport really in England. Uh, our, our second sport in England would be equivalent to America's seventh or eighth sport in terms of popularity. Um, and I'm not even sure if that's rugby, or that, but I would assume it would be. So played a lot of football as a kid, would often be out kicking the ball against the wall till 11 o'clock at night, midnight, all of that stuff. Played for my school up until the age of about 16. Um, was a decent enough athlete. I have quite a quite a tall stature and almost Michael Jordan's height. So I can, you know, I can run with the best of them, uh, but never really went anywhere with athletics. I tended to be more academic in my later teenage years and kind of pursued that route um, or route. <laughs> ended up doing electrical and electronic engineering as, as my degree and then ended up working in finance. So really, like as I was late teenage, early 20s, was not that athletic at all. From engineering to finance, is that actually a more common pairing than I imagine, or what? What was the story there? Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's uh, for, for a lot of people kind of pull up that point to question it. Back then, at, at least in Europe, still the brain drain was to finance, right? Uh, when you're studied in an, uh, an engineering discipline uh, such as, say, physics or electronic engineering, you have an understanding of logical, rational thinking and a and high aptitude with numbers. This is exactly what they want you to have if you're working in finance. Um, now, of course, the big brain drain is to tech. So all of the engineering guys are going into technology. I think the sad thing about both of those situations is that the brain drain is not really to save the planet, which is what engineers should be doing. Uh, it's more about saving oneself and uh, the making sure the bank balance is fluffed. So it's kind of a, a sad thing, but I would say the majority of my class would have ended up in some kind of finance function. What year are we talking about then for the sake of keeping a timeline? You are, you're done with school, you're in finance, and it's now the year what-ish? Um, graduated from University 2006 in London and then moved to Asia immediately after graduation and was working in finance through 2007, 8, and 9, early 2010. And then if I was uh, a little bit surprised by the transition from engineering to finance, there was actually a maybe stranger transition from finance to... <laughs> to DJing. Yeah. So uh, I did the, uh, the eternal sin of, you know, don't give up your day job, as they say. I gave up my day job in finance in early 2010. 
Um, at the time, this was now when I was living in Hong Kong, I happened to be a resident of one of the best clubs in the country and was just having a phenomenal time um, being paid to be drunk and being paid to be in a nightclub and being paid to force other people to listen to the music that I loved. And I decided that I'm making enough money from this you know, hobby, this passion in the evening that uh, let's, let's see where I can go with it if I go full time with it. Turns out that I was able to travel around the world with, with, with my DJing. I got the opportunity to play in 33 countries, I believe, across five continents. Um, and DJing introduced me to a wonderful community of people at Burning Man. I performed at Burning Man pretty much every year for the last decade. And it was through that community that I found skiing. Okay, I did not expect you to end with that sentence. It was through the community of, wait, the community of DJing or the community of Burning Man Burning that you Man. found skiing? Yeah, so through the, <laughs> through the community of Burning Man. So in 2015, I was invited to Micah Heli Ski, which is in British Columbia. Um, fantastic operation. And I was invited as part of a contingent of people that either had never skied before or didn't have the ability to ski. We... We decided that we would rent DJ equipment in Revelstoke and throw, put it on the helicopter and take it to the lodge with us. And we took over the lodge for Christmas that year. I believe it was Christmas Eve. They sent the, heli the pilots and the non-essential staff back home so they could have Christmas with the family. And it was 30 of my Burning Man camp just in this lodge DJing and, and having the having the time of our lives. And so basically on one of the days, one of the skiing days, they had arranged for the non uh, skiing or non-snowboarding contingent to jump on a helicopter and meet them on the top of a mountain for lunch. And I was just blown away by this experience. I mean, jumping in and out of a helicopter is fun just in of itself, right? Um, being dropped off in a remote mountain range with like amounts of snow that I'd never seen before in my life and mountain mountainous terrain that I'd never experienced before in my life. And, and, and then seeing my friends turn into superheroes by kind of clicking into their boards or into their skis and then just disappearing into the unknown. And that just had me hooked that moment there. And then I decided that I would not come back to this trip unless I was part of the skiing contingent and that, uh, and that kind of set me on that path of trying to figure out what skiing is all about. So just to be clear, did you actually ski that trip or were you just watching and taking this in? For the most part, I was sitting in the hot tub, sitting in the bar and watching 80s movies and just drinking, eating and drinking far too much. It was a normal Christmas experience for me. But I had the opportunity to get on top of the mountains and watch what these guys were doing. Um, there's no way that I would have even attempted to put on skis or, or strap into a snowboard at that moment. But two years later, Christmas 2017, my, my ninth day of skiing ever was heli skiing back at that lodge. <laughs> Had you ever even like watched skiing on TV prior to seeing this rather epic backcountry skiing situation happening at mica um you know i definitely seen some ski porn but i had no comprehension of the complexity the difficulty um the the kind of the magnitude of the operation of getting someone in the helicopter and doing you know i i saw this dreamlike thing on tv i had no idea the reality of it how it worked so as i said to see my normal friends turn into superheroes in that moment I was like, well, if they can do this, then for sure I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. Okay, I'm going to make us go back just for a second because I actually had a couple questions about DJing. Yeah. You know, some of us, Benji, from afar are like, 
okay, I could do this. I have songs I like, right? I could stand up in front of people and like play some some good tracks. So I want to hear from you. What is the difference between a like okay DJ, good DJ, and a great one? So that question has changed a lot over the 20 years from when I first started collecting records and DJing. Um, if I rewind back to February of the year 2000, when I bought my turntables, um, DJing required a couple of things. First of all, the motor, motor neuron skills, the coordination to be able to physically manipulate two pieces of vinyl to make them be harmonious in terms of beat, right? That's a skill that is still required, but for the most part, the technology, the computer, the laptop, or even the turntables will do that for you. So that skill set is removed. Second of all, and I think maybe even harder, is the type of music that I was performing back then, uh, which was called garage music, was such a niche uh, such a niche sound that maybe the best records would only get pressed 100 or 200 times, and you had to develop relationships with the record shops to be able to buy this physical piece of vinyl. It wasn't like ripping it off of YouTube. YouTube didn't exist back then. Or downloading it from Beatport. Beatport didn't exist back then. So a large part of it was just relationship building and being able to get the right tracks. And that's a concept that many people now have no understanding of where everything is so easily copied or everything is so fluidly transported and shared around the world. Um, but what makes a, 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 the difference between a good DJ and a great DJ? I think the, the MP3 and the iPod has really changed the concept of DJing. We all have access to thousands of songs in our Spotify right now. And so everyone is a DJ is the cliche, right? What makes a good DJ is being able to understand what's going on in the room within ter with in terms of the, the, the vibe, the energy, the things that people are wanting to hear, and to be able to keep them on this seamless energy through multiple hours without ever, in my opinion, without ever having given them a chance to kind of look at their watch or look at their phone or to, or to realize that, you know, my beer has been empty for the last song or two. No, no, no. You want to try and keep them in this trance for hours and hours and hours and just like have someone that's been dying to go to the restroom for the last five songs, but they just don't want to leave because it's so good. Um, and that's, that's, that's tough. That's, that's really a skill. I was thinking about this question too, and just wondering how much a of a, component there might be of like it also really helps maybe this isn't what makes you a great great dj but it puts you sort of in the right trajectory like be a professional like know how to show up on time and like be a personable person yeah uh those kind of elements i imagine especially if there is a bit of a leveling of the playing field that modern technology is done that maybe some of those elements now become more and more important if you're actually going to be somebody making a living doing this. Yeah. So what's really changed, I would say, in the last 10 years is because of technology, it is possible for any kid with a $300 laptop to be able to produce music that would have cost you know, $20,000 in studio gear just 20 or 30 years ago. And the role of the DJ has shifted more to um, the person that is performing songs, but quite often performing a few songs that they've made themselves. A lot of the superstar DJs are the people that have made songs that have done really well on radio. And then you go to see them because you kind of want to hear that that one song. Or, or the, and that was never really something that I did. I was more of like an underground DJ um, and just really playing things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear on the radio or, or anywhere else other than a nightclub really i promise everybody i'm gonna i'm gonna move us back to <laughs> skiing now but you know i don't i don't get to talk to people about the like 
career of DJing that often. So, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. So back to skiing. So you've told us about this first experience at Micah and you've sort of seen this now, gotten a glimpse of it. When then do you actually go click in to skis and where was that? Yeah, so I uh, it was it was exactly two months later. Um, I was DJing around South America, and I was flown to Whistler, Canada, to perform at a swingers party. So there might be some more questions to to dig into on that, or we can just keep talking about skiing. But <laughs> at some point, I decided that I, you know I have this opportunity. Uh, they put me up in the Fairmont Hotel with ski in, ski out. Even though I had no sleep the night before, it's like I couldn't say no. And so yeah, that was President's Day weekend or Family Day weekend, as they call it in Canada, uh, 2016. And I had a lesson in the morning and I spent the rest of my time there, I only skied two days, um, but I spent the rest of my time there just throwing myself down the very same green run just to try and see, like, to try and understand what was going on. Again, kind of using an engineering mindset, if you if you limit the variables and just try to do the same thing over and over again, then you can understand what's happening in terms of your results and progress. So for me, I fell maybe 27 times on that first go, first go down the green slope. And I think by the end of the day, I managed to go down it only falling five or six times. I had no idea of edging really on the icier part. But that was progress, and that that's what kept me coming back and just trying to uh, push forward. I mean, you you mentioned it, not me. <laughs> I don't think we're going to go too in-depth on swinger parties. I think I'm most interested in the idea. Was it like billed to you as a swingers party or like just a party? Like why, why was that part <laughs> important in terms of the like positioning of uh, the type of party? Uh, I'd never been to a swingers party before, so I was very intrigued to see what happened. Uh, it was a lot of fun. That's uh, that's that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> Fair. All right. And once again, back to skiing, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. So your first day, this first day skiing, you're falling quite a bit, as tends to happen. And so, with the engineering brain, was this more of sort of like a a puzzle to be solved and figured out or like, man, this is so incredibly fun. Or was it more the kind of like, this is a, a new sort of Rubik's cube. And I just want to figure out how to like, how this actually works. It's interesting. You mentioned Rubik's cube in my, my down moments in Austria, I bought a Rubik's cube and have been mastering that for the last couple of weeks, but no, it, it, it's, it's exa- it was exactly that. It was, it was, um, I was on trajectory, I hoped, to get to Micah and to be part of the superhero crew that I'd seen my friends be a part of at, at the heli skiing lodge. So I knew I, I would have the opportunity to go back there and do that if I was just able to get my skills up. And in terms of like the engineering mindset, as I said, just by controlling the variables and just, you know, it would be a lot more fun to go all over the mountain. But instead, I just decided to try and figure out why I was having problems on certain corners and try to do better the next time to improve my skills that way. So a bit of both. Got, yeah, it was definitely exciting yeah. to be outside in terrain that I'd had no experience with. Um, like I said, growing up in England, we rarely get more than a few fingers of snow, like each each handful of years. Um, had no experience of being in the mountains. For the most part, during my D- DJing career, I had been performing in cities or in tropical places. So, you know, it was literally the antithesis of how the, f- the 
previous years of my life had been. And it was just new and exotic and fun. I have such a, a such a passion and uh, love of speed that just getting that feeling of sliding down the mountain with nothing other than gravity being a method of propulsion was just a, a new sensation and, and really something that I enjoyed. But it is fair and accurate to say those next times skiing was about getting back to Micah and then being able to join join in the downhill elements of, of the, uh, of the trip. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I had committed to myself that I was not going to go back to Micah as just a, a DJ or a guy that's hanging out in the lodge. I wanted to be one of the skiers. So did I hear you correct then? Did you say there were about nine days on snow before returning to Micah? Well, technically eight. Micah was my ninth day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so how did that then go when you went back and you're in now, I'm taking it some, I mean, this is why folks heli ski. Usually it's to get into some pretty deep backcountry powder, which is also quite different from skiing green groomers. How did that go for you? Not so well, um, exactly as you would imagine. Um, when you learn how to turn on groomed runs, especially not so steep ones. I mean, by this time, I was I was attempting black runs and all of that stuff. But when you learn the art of the turn, and it's a joke to call it the art of the turn for what I was doing in my first year or two of skiing, shall we say, trying to transpose that technique into bottomless powder at a heli ski lodge is just that it's literally two different sports. And there are many stories of my friend having invited, you know, Olympic level um, skiers, ski racers to, to Micah and just thing, them just having them struggle because it's a completely different sport, completely different equipment. Um, just so different. It's so difficult. So I really, really struggled, but I had done it. I had achieved it and I was, was happy to have gotten out there and have that experience. I've been back a couple of times since and had a much better time with it now, of course, with uh, many more days under my belt. But yeah, I, I'm not a Superman. It's like, it was, it was near on impossible in the first day. So this second trip to Micah and your first time skiing that terrain and those conditions, sorry, where are we in the story? What year is that then? Yep. So December, 2017, Christmas. Have we, by this point, December, 2017, have you had this idea yet of, well, the goal that you just told us about at the beginning of this conversation? When, when does that seed get planted? Yeah, so not yet. I would say that 2018 was the year where I really became addicted to the sport of skiing. Um, So we were at Micah. Uh, I went and did uh, uh, New Year's in Vietnam for a DJ gig, came all the way back to Revelstoke like two weeks later from Vietnam uh, for an event called Send It, which is organized by some friends of mine. It's like 200 tech entrepreneurs getting together um, for lots of skiing and all of the fun that comes hand in hand with that. So I spent a week skiing in um, Revelstoke early Jan with these guys, mid-Jan. Um, then went to the Olympics as a spectator in 2018 in South Korea and uh, then chased the snow, went to Japan for a week, went to Chile for like 10 days, skied five mountains down there, then went to Patagonia on the uh, Argentinian side and skied three mountains around there. And we just really caught the bug at that moment. Now, all the way through this time, 
being, shall we say, the the minority representative for non-white folks, the, the majority, nearly all of my friends are, are white, especially with my skiing, there were always the jokes of cool runnings or Jamaican on ice and you should go to the Olympics, just, just merely in jest. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about being a mixed race person is that you always represent the minority of the group that you were in in that moment. So I could be with a group of my black friends and I'm the white guy and vice versa, or, or more accurately, they'll call me Carlton from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> or, <laughs> Those are <laughs> fighting words. Yeah, exactly. Or more, or, or on the other side, when I'm with my white group of friends, um, then I, I'm the black representative. I'm the black guy. And obviously, skiing is predominantly white. And so those were just the jokes that were thrown around. And they just took it in, in good humor. There's there's no malice in those words at all. But that's what started to get the, the cogs turning about this idea. It wasn't until... I had retired from DJing, which was at the end of 2018, but I was looking for the next thing in life to do. And I decided that I would start by spending a month in Revelstoke in, so January of 2019, I got back to Revelstoke. I honestly thought that the most likely outcome from a month of me skiing would be death or serious injury, just because I like to ski fast and really didn't have any concept of, of the skills that were required, but was fearless, shall we say. Um, and, and then that was really when I said, okay, let, let, let's see if this is uh, just a pipe dream or if there's any reality behind this, this story. So on the fifth day of that trip, and of course I extended my trip, right? Everyone never wants a ski trip to, to end. So the four, the four weeks became uh, 37 days in the end. But on the fifth day of that excursion, I had the opportunity to ski with an international level skier, Gordon Gray, uh, from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and I told him, and I, this was the first day I met him. I said, look, I have this crazy idea of going to the Olympics. I hear that you are a former ski racer. I'd love you to just tell me honestly what you think. He's like, okay, I've never seen you ski. Let's go. So we ski for the morning. And at lunchtime, he pulls me aside and he says, okay, Benji, I'll tell you what I see. Your technique is absolutely atrocious. I've never seen anything worse than this. <laughs> he said, but look, you know, I'll be honest with you. It, it, technique, skiing is a very technical sport. Technique doesn't come through osmosis or watching other people. It's, you have to be taught this. It's really complicated, especially ski racing. He said, but what's more important than that is you're keeping up with me and I have no idea how you're doing that. You are absolutely fearless. Now, bear in mind, at this point, I'd skied 25 days in my life. I'd had two ski lessons. He said, the fact that you're not afraid, I believe it means you have more than half the battle won. We can teach you the technique, um, but if you're afraid, there's, there's no chance. And I just set off on my mission of just getting as much time on snow as possible. As I said, I extended the trip to 37 days. In those 37 days, I skied 1.7 million vertical feet, 1,200 miles, uh, and left Revelstoke holding the mountain record for the most amount of vert skied in one day, 103,351 feet. And that's just kind of how fanatical I am about things when I get into them. So yeah, after that trip to Revelstoke, I felt pretty confident, uh, confident in, in, in pursuing this. And that's what I've been chasing full time since. Let's back up just a second then. And so you mentioned you've got friends making the cool running jokes. And so was it actually your friends that kind of planted this seed, people you knew as opposed to you thinking, huh, was it other folks presenting this idea, perhaps as a joke, but like, it came from outside, not necessarily, this wasn't your own idea first. I'm going to say that it was the perfect storm of three things. 
One of them exactly is people from you know external influence, skiers and other people making the joke about cool runnings and going to the Olympics. The other part of the perfect storm, part two, is retiring from DJing at, at the end of 2018 and looking for the next thing to kind of focus my efforts and attention on. 2018 was also the year, as I said, where I went to the Olympics for the first time as a spectator. And a couple of things happened. First of all, I noticed that there were only three Jamaican athletes, and I was very shocked by that. We're quite a powerhouse in the summer games, maybe not so much this year without Bolt, but typically quite a powerhouse in the summer games. I would assume that many more people had seen the, the movie and would have wanted to follow in the footsteps of that really crazy team back in 1988. I also had the opportunity to meet some of the athletes and some, some of the parents of the athletes. And I remember after the freestyle mogul, moguls sitting in the restaurant across from the, the slope, wherever it was, and just chatting with the British parents of the British athlete. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was how he was training with the Swiss team. And prior to that, I would always think that there would be some kind of you know, inherent competitions between the nations that they would never help each other out. And that just kind of gave me a bit of an indication to maybe the Olympic spirit. You know, he's he's happy to train with the Swiss team and they're happy to have him. And there's just, you know, kind of a sharing is caring, a rising tide uh, raises all ships type thing. And so those three things happening, the joking, the um, experience of the Olympics myself and retiring from my full-time role all within the same, shall we say, span of 10 months were what combined to push me in this direction of deciding to swing the bat at this. You moved pretty quickly through this sort of portion of the story where you said, you know, a person coming from multiple backgrounds, yep. uh, mixed backgrounds, in a way, you're kind of, you're kind of always the different person in the group. I mean, that's a pretty profound thing. I think we've been talking so much over the last couple years, you know, we have things like Black Lives Matter movements, right? But a lot of, I think, global attention has been placed on rather clear-cut identities. You've had, in a way, a more complicated experience than that. And while you you went through it rather elegantly and quickly, I mean... To what degree, in your own experience, was it like, yeah, I mean, I always sort of felt like I was kind of the outsider a bit, regardless of the circle I was in, and that was okay. Or it kind of left me in a perpetual state of never being entirely comfortable. How would you actually sum that up in your own experience? Yeah, it's definitely more the former than the latter. You are always... As you said, you are always, I don't want to use the word outsider, but you're always different unless you happen to be hanging in so, so, social circles of many people that are mixed race as well. And I, I can tell you there are quite a lot of us half Jamaican, half British people back in, in, in London. There are actually a million, there are a million Jamaicans in, in England alone, which is kind of crazy. Um, but it, it gives you this, again, I, I guess different personality types would react in different ways, but it gives you this confidence of not ever having to feel like you 100% belong anywhere, but still being okay with that and being confident with that. And I think we, one of the things about skiing is there are so many barriers to entry, the complexity, the cost, the, the location. And then there are also these additional barriers that are put up with regards to how elitist it can be if you're you know, a beginner skier, if you have the wrong equipment and stuff like that. 
And I think maybe my, my mixed race heritage even helped me with that. I mean, I skied in a leather jacket for the first couple of years. I didn't care. Like that, I just thought that was fun to look different. And maybe the confidence of being okay, being the odd one out and looking different and maybe even choosing to be the odd one out comes from having been brought up with that just by virtue of my race. It also seems pretty clear to me that that word you just used, confidence, this is a pretty defining element of you. Like hearing what you are now attempting to do, learning about your background, none of this sounds like the life story of somebody who has lacked in confidence. I don't think you would have made the jumps and the various leaps that you've made in your life if that were true. Does that seem accurate to you or fair? Yeah, I, I think from the outside looking in, it, it's easy to chalk it up to confidence. I think the way that it works in my head and how these things are processed are, again, a very logical, rational thought path of thinking about what are the downsides to failing at these things. So what are the downsides to failing at moving my life to Asia? Well, I just have to go home and swing the bat at another topic or another project. What are the downsides to leaving finance to chase your passion in music? Just get another finance job, right? And I think it can look like confidence when really what I'm doing is I'm running these calculations to decide, well, I'm comfortable with the risk if it goes wrong and I'm happy to give my all to this thing. Risk reward exactly. calculations. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So where are we in the story then? You have extended your trip to Revelstoke. You have apparently skied more vert than anyone ever. And so where do we go from there? 1.7 million vertical feet in the 37 days. I like to chalk it up this way. If you think about an average leisure trip with the family, you might get 10 or 20,000 vert in a day and you may ski five days out of the seven and you may go once, you may go twice. If you start to run the math on how long it takes you to get to 1.7 million vertical feet, if that's how much skiing you're doing, you're basically talking about almost a decade's worth of leisure skiing that I was able to kind of frantically fit into those 37 days in Revelstoke. And I was blessed. It was incredibly cold and there was no new powder, which may sound blasphemous to some people listening, but it meant that I had the mountain to myself and it was epic groomers that stayed great all day long. Um, so, after leaving Revelstoke, now it was time to figure out if this was a reality. Is there such a thing as the Jamaican Ski Federation? Would the International, or sorry, would the Jamaican Olympic Association even, even give me the time of day? And so I kind of went to the laptop and started to figure out all of those things and to, to see where we would go. Um, I also enrolled myself into a ski camp in Mount Hood. Um, had the opportunity to train with former U.S. team skier Will Gregoric, great kid, and and just really wanted to put on a pair of race skis and see, am I comfortable with this? Like I'd never skied around a gate before at that time. It's kind of funny. There are videos of me with like the, you know, the average age being 12 or 13 and I'm the worst one there, <laughs> but it was a necessary step to see if this thing was something that I would enjoy or, or, or would I like. And then from that moment forth, it was a case of just dedicating all of my time to it, figuring out, um, where I would choose to be home base, where I would train, and then what were the steps that were required to get to where I was going. Now, what's really interesting is I randomly put a, a message onto Reddit, and the message was, what would it take to get to 160 fist points in giant slalom? 
And of course, the internet being the internet, there were lots of stupid responses. But what was really interesting is one guy from um, from Canada, Mike Schneider. I always like to give him a shout out. He was like, just tell me more about what you're trying to do. I'm the exact person who can help you. I'm a U16 coach. A lot of my kids graduate and leave me and go on already at 165th points or below. I told him a bit more about my plans and he proceeded to write a 2,000, 3,000 word essay on exactly everything that I should be focused on, where I should try to live, what equipment I should be buying, what books I should read to focus on like mental fortitude and strength and all. Incredible. And so I've basically been following his playbook almost to the T since, since that moment. So thank you, Mike. Exactly. Community sourced intellect. Because skiing, especially like ski racing, is incredibly difficult to break into. It's such a niche part of the sport. Um, and it's just so complicated. And the type of equipment that they're using is so different to what we're using elsewhere. And I've, I've been, I've been caught out by that many times, buying the wrong equipment and not realizing till I got back to, to my first race meet to realize the boot that cost me, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars all in with all the fitting and everything was actually not the boot that is the level that I need for a World Cup racer. And now I have to start over again. Um, and go through all of that pain. And it's just, it's such a complicated sport from the outside looking in. So I'm, I'm pleased to report back that there are lots of people that are really happy to help, just really happy to help. So you also mentioned reaching out or trying to find out if such a thing as like the Jamaica Ski Federation existed. So thank you, Mike. Mike set up a blueprint for how you go about trying to get certain parts of this trajectory in place but how then hard or easy were some of these other elements okay so the first critical element was making sure i could get my jamaican citizenship i as i said was born and raised in england um had never even thought about getting jamaican citizenship until this point and turns out it's pretty easy so that's the first one done the next thing was to figure out if there was a ski federation and if the Jamaican Olympic Association would be interested in entertaining my, my bid. I managed to find the Jamaican Ski Federation, or at least a Hotmail account attached to what I thought was the Jamaican Ski Federation. And I was like, okay, this, this seems a little fishy. It seems very unprofessional, but whatever. I'll send a message and see what happens. So I find this Hotmail account and I send him a message and I say, hi, uh, I want to be the next skier for Jamaica. Um, what do I need to do? And he replied with just like, are you a Jamaican citizen? What is your ski racing experience? Um, and some other thing that I forget. So no, I'm not a Jamaican citizen. I think I can get citizenship. What is my ski racing experience? Nothing, but I did ski 1.7 million vertical feet at Revelstoke. So he thinks I'm wasting his time. He then sends me another list of things to go and basically keep me busy. I, I, I return to him very quickly and get all of the tasks done. And we agree that we should meet uh, when I'm passing through London a few months later. So we get the opportunity to meet. It turns out he's a white guy. He's also British. He um, had been in Jamaica for 50 years. And him and I share a very similar story. So we sat down, we had a, we had a beer. And he, he, I told him my story about um, going to university in London, deciding that I'd had a I would have a better life by moving to Asia, working in finance, doing the DJ thing, and now trying to do the ski thing. Now, Back then, I think Richard was 78 years old. He says to me, you and I are kindred souls. And I look at this guy, I'm like, 
Uh, yeah, I don't think so. But okay, you t- you tell me. So it turns out that he studied law at uh, Cambridge University. He used to be a ski racer for England. He had a car crash in the early 1960s, broke his leg and was unable to compete. And so when it was time for him to be back on skis, he it was the summertime. So he wanted to get to the Southern Hemisphere to kind of play catch up with what he'd missed through that season. Um, he had no money. So he decided, well, how can I get there? So the first thing he did is he phoned up the Times of London and said, I'm traveling to Chile and Argentina. I'd like to write some articles on skiing and just general travel in that area. And they say, well, what's your experience? Who are you? How about this kid? You just go to South America, write us some stuff, and we'll talk about it afterwards. He says, deal. He puts the phone down and he immediately phones British Airways and says, hi, I'm the foreign travel correspondent for the, for the Times of London. I'd like you to sponsor my airfare to go to, to, to go to the Southern Hemisphere. And back then, there's no, there's no internet. You're not going to, you know, I don't even think fax, fax machines are a thing, thing back then. And the reason I embellish that part of the story is not only to kind of, explain a little bit about Richard is his name, his personality, but also to explain that because he got that free ticket, he was able to choose whatever route he wanted to take to get to Santiago de Chile and decided, well, I'm going to stop off in Jamaica for a couple of days on my way. And he had this life-changing experience where he had such a great time, he says, on the glass bottom boats and everyone was just so friendly and warm. Anyway, so he continues on. He graduates from university. Um, ends up working as a merchant banker in London for a few years. And kind of like my revelation um, that I had about there's got to be more to life than just living in London, a light bulb goes off in his head and he says, I'm moving to Jamaica. Screw it. He put together some money. He bought some land. He owns a hotel there. And as I said, he's been living there for the last 50 years. Now, like me, he has children that are half Jamaican, half British because he has a Jamaican wife. So hot on the heels of the 1988 bobsled team and obviously the Cool Runnings movie that came out in 93, Richard, who used to be a national level skier himself and his son, who was going to private school in England and skiing, they decided why not set up the Jamaican Ski Federation and have Andrew try to ski for Jamaica as opposed to trying to ski for England. And, you know, Andrew never made it, sadly, but that allows me the chance to be the first Alpine ski racer uh, if and when I make it. But he was saying he was finishing in 40th and 50th place, but because of the the hype around cool runnings was getting just as much, if not media attention, uh, if not more media attention than than the winners of the race. So that's why we have a Jamaican ski team. Now, what's really uh, a Jamaican ski federation? Now, what's really interesting is at the end of the meeting, almost like this scene from uh, The Matrix with Morpheus and Neo, Richard looks me in the eyes. He says, I've been waiting a long time for someone like you to come along. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so cool. You know, you and I are having this conversation that's supposed to be about you, right? But then we're talking about Mike. And we end up talking about Richard and all the people that play a role in each of our lives, right? These yeah. important individual conversations, these important individuals. I never get tired of it. I guess this is just the reminder that none of us ever do anything sort of solo. And sometimes there are happy accidents that put us on a, a trajectory and that stuff never gets old to me, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, we stand on the shoulders of giants and there are so many people that know so much more about the sport than I ever will do, that have just been so gracious with their time 
and have really helped me get onto this track and to, to, to where I am right now, totally. I'm worried that I might be shopping out more interesting elements of this story. So I've been backing us up. This is your opportunity to back us up if need be. One of the things I want to make sure we talk about is just the financial logistics of an Olympic bid. Is this the time in the story where we go to that or are there other things between Richard saying, I have been waiting you know, for you and for this moment for years? You tell me. So the important thing about the finances is that A, I was very blessed to have a little bit of savings to fund the beginning of this bid. I was also fortunate enough to understand that I believe the story is quite marketable. And so I felt that Again, based on what I'd heard about previous Jamaican skiers and, you know, Andrew's experiences, I thought that the story would be unique enough that there would be companies that would be interested in being a part of the, the journey. That I, I definitely did not have enough in the bank account to kind of launch this entire bid and, and go without work for, for two years. And it's also really interesting just to kind of like talk more macro. Um, 70, 75% of Olympians will only go to one Olympic Games. And the majority of those guys will walk out of the closing ceremony over, on average, $50,000 in debt or more. And that's just because, exactly as you would imagine, the amount of time and effort it takes to focus on this thing so wholeheartedly it often means that you can't work a full-time job alongside it or at all. And then I tend to, I found myself in probably one of the most expensive sports in terms of like equipment and coaching and how it's so difficult to find the right set of circumstances to be able to train. You know, as I said, I'm sitting here in Andorra when I should be in either Chile or Argentina. And obviously COVID has made things a little bit more difficult this year, but just in general, the need to go to the Southern hemisphere to fly so far away from home for three, four months to continue training just goes further to show how, how complicated the sport is. I had no idea what you said about the most Olympians will end up after the games, you know, in about, say, $50,000 of debt. Frankly, I somehow, maybe others, maybe I'm the only one, but I, I had just not thought through the economics of that. And this actually ties into a question that I wanted to ask you, which is to go back a bit just to that very fundamental question of like, why are you doing this? And like, what is the motivation? And as I was thinking through this, I could imagine some people who hear about this, hear about the bid you're trying to make here, and that they might not be into this at all. And like, wait a sec, who are you, dude? Like, is this a joke to you? Like, are you doing this because you think it's funny? It's going to be a good laugh. It's, you know, and that some folks might think that there's almost a lack of respect in this pursuit, a kind of disrespect to fellow Olympians, to the Olympic Games, whatever. At least a portion of this for me is when you talk about the significant financial costs of pulling this off and even trying to make this happen. At least to me, this sort of makes it seem a lot less like, eh, it's just a joke. Let's see this. It's like, man, you it this all requires a level of commitment that most jokes don't usually entail. Yeah, yeah. So 
that's quite a quite a long loaded question. So I'll start with the motivations of, of why I'm doing this. Um, if we kind of zoom out and go a little bit philosophical on life, I truly believe that a life well lived is to be on your deathbed and to have these awesome chapters of life where you just did outlandish, crazy things and just no regrets. Like I had that period where I lived in Asia for 10 years, tick. I had that period where I was an international DJ, tick. You know, I was fortunate enough to go to a great college and get a great degree, tick. Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the few people that made it to the Olympics, tick. Uh, and I, 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 I look at it like that. I also am always so let's say in my happy place or most in my happy place, when I'm trying to figure something out, whether it's the Rubik's cube, you know, that's a, you know, $10 piece of toy that you can get so much fun out of. And I suggest everyone to go and buy one because why not? Or whether it's something so incredibly complicated, like the sport of skiing, feeling your progress in something that is so difficult and so challenging and feeling yourself getting better and having the ability to look back at your achievements a month ago, six months ago, and almost laugh at the fact that you were so proud of, of that peak that you'd reached, but now you've surpassed it so much. It's such an incredible feeling. And I think anyone on the phone or that's listening that has had a moment in life where they've been able to dedicate themselves wholeheartedly to something, and they could be lucky enough that it was part of their career or, or, or sporting an accolade or some achievement will know exactly what I'm talking about. There's so much pleasure and joy that comes from that. Now let's talk about, could this be perceived as a joke or is this, uh, let's start with, is this disrespectful to the Olympics? So the only reason I'm able to launch a bid like this is because the International Olympic Committee believes that the Olympics would be better served if there were as many nations in as many different sports as possible. And so to facilitate that, what they do is they actually set up a B criteria that every nation is able to put forward one guy and one girl for every discipline. The criteria changes depending on what the sport is. I believe based on maybe my personal abilities that something like cross country would be much easier for me to get to. Whereas something like downhill or super G by virtue of the difficulty and the high speeds involved, uh, the bar is much higher. Now, the requirement for me to get into uh, Giant Slalom is 165 points, as I said, and I have to have five results that get me below that level. Now, this would never have me qualify for the Austrian ski team. It would be nowhere near the U.S. ski team or any major team that uh, has, has access to snow, any major country that has access to snow. But the belief from the International Olympic Committee is, just like with the bobsled team, if a Jamaican guy goes to the Olympics and kind of makes a splash around the sport of skiing and giant slalom, I'm pretty sure there are going to be a bunch of people that are now interested in the sport that didn't think it was for them, right? And this also touches back on the race thing. Um, I gave a talk recently um, about taking leaps of faith and my thought process behind that um, to a bunch of the employees from YouTube and Google. And in the month between when they first heard me talk and what I was going to talk about and me actually giving the presentation, one of the presenters who was Jake, Jamaican himself had jumped in the car and went to Lake Tahoe and, and skied for the first, well, snowboarded for the first time ever. And I think that just goes to show what the Olympic spirit is about. Yes, there are the people that are at the top that have dedicated 20 plus years to this thing and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars and are representing you know, major national teams such as uh, the US or Austria, shall we say. But the, the, the Olympic spirit is not about elitism. It's also about 
getting new people into the sport. And who knows, just like the philosophy behind the 88 bobsled team, where he believed that if you get a bunch of really fast sprinters to push a bob, then maybe you'll find some talent there. Uh, and not many people know this, but uh, um, the Jamaican bobsled team, I think they came in 14th, just two Olympics later, in front of many teams that had like 50 times their budget. So they actually had some pretty good achievements. Dudley Stokes, who's the, the, the driver of the 1988 Bobster team, is one of my mentors, and we speak uh, every, every week or so. I think there are some times where a story like this is taken in, in, in the bad way because it does feel like it's a, a mockery of the system. And I think a lot of people will be thinking to Elizabeth Swanee, uh, and her approach to just wanting to be a part of the Olympics. And, you know, there's the kind of a joke of the half pipe run where she almost, but pretty much skied straight down the middle. The difference is this, you know, I, I'm, I'm putting my all into this. I've skied 350 days out of the last 18 months. Uh, I haven't worked in the last two years because I'm so passionate about skiing and getting to where I need to get to. You know, I've uprooted my life to live in locations that I've, you know, I grew up in a small town. I never thought I'd be living in a small town like Jackson, but here, here I am, or now in Andorra. But like, I never thought that would be part of my thing. So huge life changes. And also the, you know, that I, I truly believe that people will see that what I've been able to achieve in just starting skiing at the age of 32 and being able to be there on the world scale and consider that maybe this is something that's for them. And I hope that just my participation and my story will encourage people not necessarily to try for the Olympics, but just to get out there and try skiing or just try hiking or something. Yeah, the thing that I found myself thinking about, you know, to the, you know, let's call them the the hypothetical person. I imagine there might be a few out there, but the hypothetical person that's like, this is, you're making a mockery, whatever, probably it's easiest to have that take on this. If you yourself are in a position where you have not felt like an outsider to these things. Right. And I think hearing your story one, I, I think it is really, it's important for me to hear that when you're like, dude, I'm all in on this. So, okay, we're going hard. And two, there's the personal story of what, can I do? What can I achieve? How can I push myself coupled with the related story of this might be a pursuit that then expands the sense of what's possible to others out there? That's just the coolest, you know? The world is messed up as you and I have been talking about before we started recording. But I do think that this is one of the things that brings me quite a bit of optimism is that I do think why representation is important is something that maybe more of us are understanding. And that expansion of what's possible for every human being is really important, is really cool, will be of major benefit on an individual level and be a major benefit to sort of humankind. The more people who think there are more doors open to me than ever before everybody benefits from that i think totally yeah no i think so absolutely and i mean my intention after the games is to continue to be involved with the ski federation and just try to help the next generation of kids with with my experience of getting there myself 
to do the same thing for Jamaica or beyond. I haven't decided whether that role will be more like being involved with the National Brotherhood of Skiers, uh, it's a super cool in institution, or whether it would be more singularly focused and, and working with the Ski Federation or maybe even taking up the presidency if and when Richard decides that he no longer wants to do that. I mean, he's 80 this year after all. <laughs> Let's dive in a bit more on skiing and your own ski training right now so you're in andorra but i'm interested to hear like what you are most specifically working on currently what i'm working on most specifically pertains to just time in gates and really understanding the the body positioning and really how to make the ski work to get you to carve around the turn particularly on a very, very icy surface, right? No two races are created equally with regards to the surface that you'll have, but definitely the courses that I'll, the course that I'll be on at the Olympics and some of the courses that I have been are going to be injected surfaces. And I think, you know, someone that hasn't ski raced has no concept of actually what real ice is like when we're talking about injected surfaces. I mean, imagine um, an ice hockey rink at 40 degrees pointing down the hill and without correct body positioning and without a correct understanding of how to where, where to have your weight, it's impossible to make that ski work for you. Um, the skis that we have to use in giant slalom are uh, not that fun, I'll say. Uh, I'm, I'm riding a 30-meter radius ski, so it takes a lot to get that thing to bend, and so it's super-duper technical. Um, and that's where the majority of my effort is going right now. I, I will say that I really struggled to get enough coaching in Jackson, um, partially because of COVID uh, and partially because I think that they didn't fully think that my, my bid was real. Um, and so instead of joining the fist kids who train for 20 hours a week, I was with the masters group who, um, you know, unlike being the oldest when I was training in Mount hood, now I was the youngest by some considerable margin, uh, and was only training for four, four and a half hours a week. I've rectified that. Now I'm working with a fantastic coach in Austria. Um, I'm working with the shield racing camp and Benedict shield has won gold medals in, in for the Austrian ski team and many world cup podiums. So yeah, I, I guess you go to where the source is as it pertains to skiing and ski racing. And we've, we've made incredible improvements in the short time that I had together with that camp. Um, my first race last year at big sky, I was about 60 seconds away from where I needed to be. Um, my best race this season um, in Lutzen, Minnesota, I was seven seconds away from where I need to be to qualify. And in the 22 days of coaching that I had in Austria, um, at least 22 days on snow, I think we've slashed that deficit in half, if not more. All right. Trying to go even more granular here. So you're talking about racing gates. Is there a specific element in that discipline where you have made the most improvement? And so, I mean, that could mean timing, that could mean trusting your edges more. I mean, how would you answer that question? Well, the beautiful thing about racing is that you have this objective measure of the clock, right? You can keep going down and see whether run A is better than run B, et cetera, et cetera. And so my time has come down drastically in the past, uh, call it 17 months since my first race. Really, it's just been a process of 
understanding how all of the elements come together. So when I first started skiing, I was on a hand-me-down ski, which was the old regulations, 35 meter. So I was at a huge disadvantage to everyone else in the course. I was also in my Lang RX boot, which is kind of like a sports touring boot, as opposed to being in a proper race boot. I didn't realize how much of a disadvantage I was putting myself at by not having the right equipment. Um, even still, when I changed to the proper 30 meter ski, uh, I still wasn't on the correct boot. I bought a boot in Jackson Hole. The, Jackson's not so known for, for racing. I'm sure a lot of the listeners have been there and uh, they haven't been there for racing. And so, you know, I, I spent 1200 bucks on a boot and many painful hours getting the, getting the liner fit to find out at my first race of the season that I'd been sold the wrong boot. And so I had to start all over again with that process. So there's been a huge respect and appreciation for the attention to detail that ski racing requires and just the complexity of the sport. Most of the races that are out there have been skiing since two and have been doing kind of drills around gates or stubbies since they were four or five years old. And all of these little mistakes they've made along the way, or they've had a coach with them that has said, hey, this, that's not how we do it. I've basically had to go out there and make every single mistake once to figure out that that's not what you do. The first race of the season uh, this year, my bindings were set at 10, but they were set at 10 on a 10 to 16 uh, binding, so basically a zero. And in my first big rut, both the skis popped off. You know, it was a wasted opportunity because I didn't know that. I won't do it again. Um, but yeah, a, a massive appreciation for how much effort and how much you know, thinking and calculation and how much kind of like precision goes into the sport of ski, ski racing. It's really, it's really something else. I'm, I'm constantly in awe of the professionals and, and what they're able to do is just something that's barely human, shall we say. So what does the timeline look like for you? We are talking, it is August 16th. Tell me what markers you need to hit. What are, what are things looking like for you until this coming February. Right. So it's, it's very uh, poignant that the day is the 16th because the deadline for qualification is also the 16th, January the 16th. So in the next five months, let's just call it 150 days for, for simplicity, I need to have five race results that on average have, uh, that on average have my score below 165th points. Now I'm working on two things concurrently right now. First of all, I'm trying desperately to get into the Southern Hemisphere. Um, obviously the best training you'll get for winter sport is in the winter. Um, because of COVID, uh, the Chilean borders are shut. The New Zealand borders are shut. Uh, Argentinian, the Argentinian borders are shut. Uh, so I've, I've struggled with that. We are trying some backdoor channels and some other kind of spicy ways to see if, if that can work. Everything legal, of course, but just trying to see if I can get myself into the country. Uh, it hasn't worked so far. Um, the plan B will be to get to a glacier in either Austria or in Italy. The added complexity that I have with that situation is that since Brexit, Brits can only spend 90 days out of every rolling 180 in Europe without a specific visa. So I'm applying for a visa right now, um, but it's just a little bit complicated that when you're trying to apply for a visa for a country and you're not in your home country, or you're not in a country where you have a, a, a resident permit or a reason to be there, most embassies just won't entertain that. So I'm trying to get a special uh, plea so I don't have to go back to England and then suffer the quarantine twice of going back there and then the quarantine again of getting to Italy. Um, Let's assume that happens. 
I'll spend the majority of uh, September on a glacier somewhere. I'll spend all of October back in Austria uh, with the shield racing camp, probably on a glacier. But if we are lucky with with the with the temperatures and snow, maybe on uh, just a normal mountain nearby. And then basically all the way through November and all the way up until Christmas, it's going to be a race every, every a race meet every third or fourth day, shall we say? So it's going to be lots of traveling and lots of training in between. I really hope that if I get another two solid months of training cooled out all of September and all of October with a real like solid coach like the Shield Race Camp, then I'm certain that that seven second deficit that I was uh, dealing with back in March, then I have no problem. The only issue is making sure I get to enough races. And as, as I said, I think we said earlier, there are no two races that are the same. Conditions are different. The field is different. For the people on, that are listening to the podcast that know about racing, you know that when your uh, handicap is quite quite bad, like mine is currently, then you might be the 180th person to go down that course. Um, going 180th is, is no fair comparison to the guys that went out in the top 30. So choosing races that might only have a field of 60, so I can go off 50th instead of at the back, all of this comes into the strategy of trying to, to qualify. And the hopes are that I can get all of that done for Christmas and uh, get back to Jackson and hang out on some powder again. speaking of jackson and skiing powder first of all it's really interesting to me that effectively your first experience with skiing was actually like going back to micah but it was it was backcountry powder skiing that is not what i would have guessed you know i would have assumed it was a more or less normal like my family, or I went with some friends, you know, on a three-day vacation and to some ski area somewhere, and we were sliding around in bounds. That's not, that's not how you kind of got introduced to this sport. But talk to me then about Jackson and what you're up to there. And are you getting into the backcountry in Jackson? Yeah. So as an athlete that's trying to qualify as a ski racer, I try my hardest to be on the slopes and to be working on technique and not kind of muddying the waters by skiing too much powder. That's really hard in a place like Jackson because obviously we're blessed with over 500 inches of snow for the last few years. Um, But what was really interesting is when the world stopped last March, and I remember it very clearly, we have this rule in our house that if there's been more than 10 inches of snow overnight, we can play Eye of the Tiger as loud as possible on the solar system and wake everyone up and get everyone to the mountain nice and early. And because of traveling and because of racing, I'd been away and hadn't had the opportunity to do that. And the first time that I got to do that was right around when they shut it down. And I remember getting to the mountain uh, and cars were turning around and no one was able to ski that Sunday. I think it was the 16th. But that very same day, we grabbed some backcountry equipment and we just skinned Snoking, just a very you know chilled uh, like foray into the difference of having to walk up the mountain. What's really nice is I was kind of at a fork in the road on this path to the Olympics. There is no lift-operated snow in all of, all of America and probably nowhere else in the world at that moment. Do I just focus in the gym? Do I give up on the plan? How long will this pandemic thing be, be, be with us? Or do I go into the backcountry? And I came, became a bit of a backcountry enthusiast. I skied 90 days in the backcountry um, from the middle of March. Um, I did some incredible lines. I mean, we're so blessed to have some of the most easily accessible that country in, in North America, some really incredible stuff off of the Teton Pass. And of course, there's the Grand Teton National Park. And 
you know, I think the, the numbers came out to being, I climbed over 300,000 vertical feet to get to snow in that period. So 10 Mount Everest. So I've just been like a complete fanatic about backcountry. Didn't get to do much this season because I was very focused on being on my race skis. But I honestly believe that the backcountry element of the sport is probably something that will stay with me beyond racing, definitely beyond racing, but maybe even beyond buying a ticket to go in a resort. I just got something so special about being out there in the middle of nowhere with no one around other than your partner for miles and just taking your time to get up and, as they say, earning your turns and climbing something for four hours to ski down it in five minutes. There's just something so special about that that I, that I really, really savored and, and uh, will definitely be doing for many decades to come. There's been a lot of very cool elements to this conversation, but one of the things that I've really enjoyed is it's just always really fun to me to go back and kind of hear these fresh experiences, people coming into this or seeing this weird sport on the one hand and then finding their way into it and 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 hearing that kind of the wonderment, right? For lack of a better word. And so for you, whether that was, you know, sliding down green runs in bounds to being forced into kind of backcountry because of COVID, it's just really interesting. And I, I think that, you know, certainly there are people listening to this have been skiing a lot longer than I have, but for all of us kind of getting to hear someone recount their own experience of this stuff is all, it's, it's really, it's really great. And I think a good reminder for all of us. So yeah, I'm just smiling and nodding along hearing you uh, recount these things. I should let you get going shortly here, but tell us what any of us should know or what some of us could maybe do to kind of help in this process? What what things would be the most beneficial for you at this time? Uh, if anyone knows the president of Chile or Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody listening to this might. <laughs> or the prime minister of New Zealand. <laughs> that would be the obvious one. No, um, I, I think it's back to the finances thing. I'm super keen to find brands um, that are keen to associate with with my with my story. Uh, my main sponsor actually is Steel, who are based out of Jackson. Um, Lecky is my other sponsor, and both of them have said the same thing. They're like, we love the fact that you're trying to get to the Olympics, but to be quite frank, the fact that you've done X number of days of skiing in the last year or two, there are many people that might not get to do that in a decade, and it just shows your passion and love for the thing. So even if you don't get to the Olympics, we're happy to support you along this way. So I'm always looking for other brands and companies that would like to be a part of this story. Um, and people can just find me on Instagram or on my website and and maybe send it to a couple of friends or just share this podcast. Tell us the best places for people to get in touch with you. So specifically, if that's social media, your handles are what? Yep. So social media, Instagram is the best. Just Benji, B-E-N-J-I dot ski. Um, and then my website is the exact same thing, www.benji.ski. Well, Benji, this has been really fun. It's great to connect. It's great to hear more of your story. You are certainly stringing together an interesting life. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's really cool. I, I'm so glad that we can post this conversation now and uh, all of us can just keep tabs on how this is all working out. And man, I know you've got a lot of 
from from trying to get into particular countries and just get on snow to be training to finding the right races, you definitely have uh, your work cut out for you here. And and hopefully you now have a whole lot more people in your corner and, and rooting for you here. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you for having me. I've been listening for a long time. It's great to actually speak with the voice that I've been just hearing on uh, on the podcast for the last few months, especially while climbing mountains. But yeah, <laughs> I think I think the, the journey is a big part of it, right? And all of these added complexities and all of these hurdles that are thrown in the way will just add color to the story as I as I continue on my mission to get where I'm trying to go. All the best to you. All the best to you, and we will be uh, we will be following along closely. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on. We'll talk to you soon. Good luck. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Benjamin for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over on our Off the Couch podcast and our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast and on our Gear 30 podcast. So subscribe to those different podcast feeds to make sure you're catching all of these blister conversations. Bye, everybody.